beautiful passages that Larry just read. Incredible confidence and hope of life forever after the grave. Pray with me, and then we will read from John 11 a portion, and I'll at that time ask you to stand, but let's pray first. O most holy Heavenly Father, we, we stand amazed at the wonders of your mercy, your compassion, your capacity for long-suffering and love towards us despite our sin and waywardness. We are eternally humbled and grateful that as thy word speaks, mercy triumphs over judgment. For, Lord, if you marked and retained transgressions, who of us could stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, eternal forgiveness with thee, that, that you have provided on our behalf. And this before we were created. Indeed, before we drew our first breath, you had envisioned and accepted the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so forever and ever, we shall praise and exalt the name of Jesus, thine only begotten Son, our Lord. Now, Father, grace us with thy spirit, the spirit of truth, this day. And give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in a deeper knowledge of Jesus. Enlighten the eyes of our heart. Spirit of the living God, illuminate the sacred pages of thy word for us. Please speak to us through the scripture. Let us hear the voice of Jesus proclaiming thy blessed name, Father, in heaven. We humble ourselves like the publican, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, Lord, we come with our hands open to receive the word that has proceeded from thee. Speak, our Lord, we are listening. Amen. Would you stand with me, take your Bibles, and turn to John 11. We will read the first six verses and then skip to verse 17 for a few more. John chapter 11, the first six verses of this incredible, incredible passage. The Word of God. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, and it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sisters therefore sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed then two days longer in the place where he was. 
Now verse 17 through 27. So when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary still sat in the house. Martha therefore said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who is believing into me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who is living and believing into me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, he who comes into the world, the word of God. You may be seated. The Gospel of John is the masterpiece gifted to the church during the first century by the Spirit of God after the first three Gospels had washed over it. For John's Gospel is the God-breathed-out gift completing the New Testament canon of Gospel accounts. And while the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Why the word synoptic? Synthesis, synthesize, things that are similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke approach the gospel account of Jesus in very similar ways, and so they're called similar synoptics. While the synoptic accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, reveal primarily the what and the who, John's Gospel reveals the why and the who of the Gospel. Thus, Calvin's assessment is spot on, vindicated after careful thought when he writes that while the other Gospels reveal to us Christ's body, John reveals to us Christ's soul, the why and the who. Now, the Gospel of John is typically thought to divide into two major parts. First 12 chapters, the book of signs, signs that Jesus did to establish the veracity, the truthfulness of what he was saying and claiming. So verses, chapters 1 through 12, the book of signs, starting with chapter 3, and that is his public ministry. But in chapter 13 to 21 is his private ministry with his disciples, and that is known typically as 
the book of glory. So the book of signs, first 12 chapters, book of glory, chapters 13 through 21. And today we are near completion of the book of signs, for we will come to the final sign, the raising of Lazarus. This is not an arbitrary title. John, the Spirit, breathes through John and says, this sign Jesus performed, speaking of the water to wine. So God identifies, here are seven signs. So in the first 12 chapters, there are seven major discourse teachings, seven major signs, and seven glorious I am, I am statements by Christ. I first had organized this chapter by chapter, but I realized that might be confusing. So instead, we have category by category. The signs are seven in number. First, turning water into wine, Cana of Galilee, chapter 2. The second sign, healing the nobleman's son, chapter 2. The third sign, healing the blind man at the pool, Chapter 5, which initiated all of the controversy leading to his death. Fourth sign, he feeds the multitude. Chapter 6. Fifth sign, he walks on water. Chapter 6. Sixth sign, he heals the man born blind, applying mud to his eyes, mimicking, bad word, resonating perfectly with what he had done in Genesis 2, breathing life into the dust. So the sixth sign, healing the man born blind, nine. And the seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus, John 11. Now the discourse teachings are seven in number. Discourse teachings of his public ministry, because chapters 13 through 17 are intense teachings, but it's private. So the discourse teachings are seven in number. The first discourse is with Nicodemus on the new birth, chapter 3. Second discourse, the water of life, the woman of Samaria, chapter 4. Third discourse, the divine son, chapter 5. And there is an emphasis on what the prologue had hinted at in John 1, 1, B. And the Word, who will be said to be God, and the Word was with God. And so that's the emphasis starting heavily in John 5, the third discourse, the divine Son. Fourth discourse, the bread of life, chapter 6. Fifth Discourse, The Life-Giving Spirit, Chapter 7. Sixth Discourse, The Light of the World, Chapter 8. Seventh Discourse, The Good Shepherd, Chapter 10, where he shifts and places emphasis now upon John 1, 1, C. Up to this point, Father-Son Distinction, John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Boom. 
John 1, 1c, and the word was God. The predicated I am, I am, ego, imi, sayings, remember, you can remember this, kids, ego, imi, I am, I am, let go of my ego, ego, imi. The predicated I am, I am sayings are seven in number. The first, I am the bread of life, chapter 6. The second, I am the light of the world, chapter 8. The third and fourth, I am the door of the sheep, 10. I am the good shepherd, 10. And the fifth predicated, I am, I am, today, is I am, I am, the resurrection and the life, chapter 11. Today, I hope, and, and first, I pray that you've been blessed in your knowledge of who he is and your ability to bow down like Thomas and say, my Lord and my God of Jesus. But today, I hope to bring out four truths from John 11, four truths and the fourth one is but a, a moment's glance. The first truth, when Jesus delays answering prayer. Second truth, you believe in the creed, but do you believe into me? Third truth, Christ approaches prepared for the contest. And the fourth and last, if the world hates me, it will hate you too. But by way of preparation, let me first give you two intensely practical lessons that I was blessed listening to Derek Thomas yesterday preach on John 11. Quite a sermon. And he pointed out two things that very much stand out as true. Been there, done that. The first practical lesson, getting flustered with Jesus will get you nowhere. <laughs> Do I have a witness? <laughs> getting flustered with Jesus will get you nowhere. Second, sorrow is a good place to learn something about Jesus. First, when Jesus delays answering prayer, here's the first 16 verses of John 11. John 11, verse 16, when Jesus delays answering prayer. It's interesting how John begins by by describing this small family of siblings whom Jesus loved, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Apparently, they, they were one of the wealthiest uh, families in Bethany, if not the wealthiest. We, we get that from the incredible value of the ointment Mary pours on Jesus' feet in the next chapter. Bethany was close, just two miles away from Jerusalem. And so th these three, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, would have been well known. In fact, uh, 
the next chapter shows us because of the incredible swelling of people to support Mary and Martha, we know that they were very well off and very loved. Well, the sisters in verse 3 sent to Jesus a simple message laden with their heartfelt request. He whom you love is sick. Hmm. He or she whom you love is sick. What a statement. Could this be said of me? Has it been said of me? Could this be said of you? He whom you, Jesus, love is struggling, is sick. Now, I mean, move past the theology of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Move past that. Does Jesus know me? Am I one who goes in and out of the Bible daily finding pasture? You see, that's where he's at. That's the pasture where he's at. Am I one who goes in and out finding pasture? Does Jesus find me in the garden of Holy Scripture, searching, walking, listening, daily pondering the sacred text? I pray so. Well, Verses 5 and 6 tightly describe the problem. We are told that Jesus loved Martha, his sister Mary, and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stays two more days waiting. <laughs> this is not good protocol for a pastor shepherd. This is bad protocol. In fact, upon learning of a crisis of whatever nature, it is my pattern to immediately be on the phone reaching out. Many of you can testify to that. That's what a pastor shepherd does. But Jesus, the good shepherd, deliberately waits. Calvin comments very helpfully here. Track carefully with me. As Christ is the only mirror of the grace of God, we are taught by this delay on his part that we ought not judge the love of God from the condition which we see before our eyes. Ooh. But we do, but we ought not. We ought not judge the love of God for me by the condition which we see before our eyes. He goes on. When we have prayed to him, he often delays his assistance. Boy, is that true. When we have prayed to him, he often delays his assistance, either that he may 
increase still more our ardor in prayer, fervency in prayer, or that he may exercise our patience and at the same time <laughs> accustom us to obedience. Whoa. He often delays his assistance that he may either increase more our fervency in prayer or exercise our patience and at the same time accustom us to obedience. Hmm. Let believers then implore the assistance of God, but but let them also learn to suspend their desires if he does not stretch out his hand for their assistance as soon as they may think necessity requires. For whatever may be his delay, he never sleeps, he never slumbers. The Lord who keeps thee neither slumbers nor sleeps. What psalm is that? 121. You should know that. I think you do. Yet let us, this Calvin again, yet let us also be fully assured that he wishes all whom he loves to be saved. Hmm. God's glory does not consist in sparing his children life's difficulties. You'll never hear that in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But it's true. God's glory does not consist sparing his children life's difficulties. It is through life's difficulties <laughs> that he performs his best work upon and within us, preparing us for eternity with him. So, here in John 11, Jesus is not moved by external worldly pressures, but solely by his determined will to do the will of God his Father, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Jesus' highest purpose is not my comfort, but his glory sanctifying his bride, and through my discomfort to bring him glory as he steadily prepares me for heaven in eternity. Is this how you think about your comfort level? How is it? If it's not, you're going to hurt a whole lot more than you need to and still be in his hand if you're his child. Do you understand that? You can be in his hand. I trust we all are. I'm convinced of that. You're here. It's strong evidence. You can be in his hand, but you can fight and kick and fuss and cry and ask why, 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 all the way to your grave and be absolutely miserable until you pass through death. <laughs> and then it's glory. 
It's better to get with the program now. Far better. Well, testimony. When my eyes drop from looking in his eyes and I look at the problems, at the losses, at the fear, the waves under my feet, I begin to sink. But when my eyes are locked on him, I'm okay. How is it with you? But look at verse 15. Something startling is there that you won't see in any translation. I checked every translation I could on the internet. Look at verse 15. What is the relationship between verse 15 and Philippians 4.4? 4? There is one. Philippians 4.4 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. That's Philippians 4.4. 4. And John 11.15 uses the same word for joy or rejoicing. The exact same word, different form. Cairo. It could and perhaps should be translated, and for your sake I rejoice that I was not there so that you may believe. <laughs> when did you last approach a funeral rejoicing? Jesus did. Calvin, again. When God permits us to be overwhelmed with distresses and to languish long under them, let us know that in this manner he promotes our salvation. At such a time, no doubt, we groan and are perplexed and sorrowful, but the Lord rejoices on account of our benefit and gives a twofold display of his kindness to us in this respect. Listen to this stunning statement by Calvin that he not only pardons our sins, but gladly finds means of correcting them. Whoa! He not only pardons sin, but then finds mean of fixing that crooked personality. And who likes that? Nobody. Forcing the broken limb, mangled limb, to become straight spiritually. Personality, character. Calvin says elsewhere, Christ justifies no one whom he does not also sanctify. Churches love having sermons after sermons after sermon of who we are in Christ. But don't talk to us about what we're supposed to do now. Hmm. So he not only pardons our sins, but gladly finds means of correcting them. So first, when Jesus delays answering prayer, there's, there's some deep things to learn. Second, you believe in the creed, but do you believe into me? 
verses 17 through 27. Well, Jesus arrives at the tomb where the, the body, the corpse of Lazarus, has lain four days. Decomposition of the flesh has obviously begun. Derek Thomas tells in, in uh, Ireland, I guess, when he was a boy growing up, caskets open, and they'd meet at the church, and then men would carry the casket. Corpse had not been embalmed. He said the stench was horrific walking down the street. You can imagine especially in the climate of Palestine. So that Christ deliberately delays is accentuated by the fact that it was but two miles away. Martha, by natural inclination of her character, goes immediately to Jesus saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give to you. Is there accusation in her voice? Is it similar to the other account? Lord, tell my sister to get up and help me. Hmm. Getting flustered with Jesus will get you nowhere. And yet, observe his tender patience with Martha. He said, your brother shall rise again. <laughs> and Martha says, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I, I know the creed. I can recite the creed. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Jesus, yes, you know the creed and you believe the creed, but I am the creed. I am the creed. The creed is just words, words which point to eternal reality, but I am that reality standing in front of you. I am the creed. Jesus said that with these words, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who is trusting into me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who is living and who is trusting into me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, I I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Martha makes essentially the good confession of Thomas, my Lord and my God. John Knox here says, And the wonderful truth Christ asserts is that the one trusting into him to all eternity cannot die. The believer has eternal life. The believer, the one trusting into Jesus, will not undergo the worst of deaths, eternal death. The question is not, do you know doctrinal truth and believe it to be true? 
The question is not, do you know the creed? The question is, do you know Christ Jesus to whom the creed, to whom the confession points? And does he know you? If he does, the wondrous thing is, this is First John, you'll be able to look at your life and see evidence of growth, evidence of sanctification, evidence of bad behaviors being put to death. It'll be, it, you'll be growing, you'll be changing. And this isn't because you're earning it. This is because he is changing you from within as you go in and out finding pasture. Now observe again the present participle form, trusting, faithing, and the use of the preposition ice into. It worries me. What have you done with this intrinsic to John's gospel description of what faith, belief, trust is? Relational movement toward Jesus. Is this me? Is this you? Would he describe you as in relational movement toward him, faithing, trusting, believing, a verb? Why is Christ the resurrection, asked Calvin? Because by his spirit he regenerates the children of Adam who had been alienated from God by sin so that they begin to live a new life. Accordingly, they who believe in Christ, though they were formerly dead, begin to live because faith is a spiritual resurrection of the soul and, so to speak, animates, enlivens the soul itself that it may live to God. He continues, The reason why it is said that believers never die is that their souls being born of incorruptible seed, 1 Peter 1, have Christ dwelling in them from whom they derive perpetual vigor even though they're 62 years old. Or how old, Virgil? Christ living in them still. Perpetual vigor. For though the body be subject to death on account of sin, yet the spirit is life on account of righteousness, Romans 8, that the outward man daily decays in them is so far from taking away any from their true life that it aids the progress of it because the inward man is renewed from day to day. And then he says this, this is worth its weight in gold. What is still more, death itself is a sort of emancipation from the bondage of death. Wow. Do you see death that way? It's the doorway to eternal life. Praise and thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Well, first, when Jesus delays answering prayer. Second, you believe in the creed, but do you believe into me? Third, Christ approaches prepared for the contest, verses 28 through 45. 1 John 3, 8 says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Christ approaches the tomb and is met by Mary, who repeats what Martha had said. And, and when Jesus sees Mary weeping and the Jews who were with her weeping, the New American says he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. ESV, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Holman Christian Standard Bible, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. The word here translated deeply moved is an unusually strong word meaning strong indignation. It is typically the word used to describe the <clears throat> Snorting of a horse. A horse stamping. <clears throat> is the word that is used here. B.B. Warfield writes, It is death that is the object of his wrath. <sighs> and behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb in Calvin's words. This is B.B. Warfield quoting Calvin. Christ does not come to the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler, preparing for the contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans again for the violent tyranny of death, which he had to overcome, stands before his eyes. Warfield again. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel. But indeed, it is presented throughout the whole narrative, a decisive instance and open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us, for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus, B.B. Warfield as he wins for us our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath he snorts against the foe. Jesus smites in our behalf. The same Apostle John tells us, as we read, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Calvin's Institutes, 
by his wrestling hand to hand with the devil's power, with the dread of death, with the pains of hell, he was victorious and triumphed over them. That in death we may now not fear those things which our prince <laughs> has swallowed up. Well, first, when Jesus delays answering prayer, you've heard the, oh, the younger generation hasn't, but the commercial, it's not nice to fool Mother Nature. Remember that? It's pointless to get flustered at Jesus when Jesus delays answering prayer. Second, you believe in the creed, but do you believe into me? Third, Christ approaches prepared for the contest. Fourth, if the world hates me, it's going to also hate you. John 11, look at verse 47 with me. Read just a short portion. Therefore, the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing this man? is performing many signs. Notice that. We are only being told a select sample of the signs, the multitude of signs Jesus was doing. 48. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, high priest, said... You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. Now, this he did not say on his own initiative. Like Balaam, God took over his mouth and he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now look at verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. From that day on, they planned together to kill him. This Jesus has just raised a man dead four days, and their response, we've got to kill him. Now go to chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, because this follows immediately upon this. Verse 9, the great multitude, therefore, the Jews, learned that, that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death as well. <laughs> you talk about hardness of heart. Kill the evidence after he's already died once. If the world hates me, they will also hate you. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. It has been said that the entire Bible is a footnote to Genesis 3.15. 
where God speaks and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. John 11, when Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled and again deeply moved, came to the tomb, tomb, said, take away the stone. So they took it away. And when he had prayed, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Hmm. Praise to the holiest in the heights. A hymn. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love that flesh and blood which did in Adam fail should strive afresh against the foe should strive and should prevail. Amen. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you that in the giving and the sending of your Son, you purpose to conquer death, to conquer the corruption to which this whole cosmos was subjected by the fall of the first Adam. We thank you that in the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, we have certain assurance of salvation. We thank you, Jesus, that as you approached the tomb, you snorted with indignation. For you hate what sin has done. You hate what death has done. And you would conquer both by your death and resurrection. We are your people, called by your name. Blessed are you, O God, for Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.